Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accountant, accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. My practice specializes in providing fact-based strategic and risk management advice to clients that are buying, selling, or growing the value of companies and their intellectual property. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also recently launched a new LinkedIn group called A Group That Doesn't Suck. So please join that as well. So if you would like to engage, if you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is should I adopt lean management? And I I find this topic so fascinating because it's so far afield from what I normally do, although I I have a feeling. It's probably closer than I think. I just don't know what I'm doing. Um, but lean management is something that's often associated with uh, manufacturing. And, and at least as a close relative, if not the exact same thing as, as GE's famed Six Sigma program and so forth. And, and our guest is going to talk about exactly, uh, exactly what it is. Uh, but you know, the concept of lean management, I think, is, is, is seductive. Uh, in in many ways, in that it's it, it's a philosophy that suggests that the tools for one's success as a profitable business and operation lie firmly within the grasp of the business, and not necessarily hoping for a market to turn or for customers to suddenly like you or to suddenly to be mentioned by a YouTube influencer or something like that. And, um, you know, for anybody that is successful and runs their business successfully, there's something that's intoxicating about the concept that you can, you have the power to improve things on your own within kind of a closed system. So here are some statistics from a website called winman.com regarding the impact of on companies that successfully implement lean management programs. Um, they meet their delivery targets or increase their ability to meet their delivery targets by 26%. They improve their inventory t- turnover by 33%. They enjoy improved labor productivity by 25%. They reduce scrap by 26% and they improve their space efficiency by 33%. Now, those numbers may or may not seem like a lot, but when you think about how manufacturing tolerances are often made or broken by percentage points or fractions of a percent. 
those kinds of impacts are just out of this world. Now, lean management, as we're going to discover, I think, is not, is not easy. It's much easier to say than do it. And like I said, I am wholly unqualified to talk about it beyond what I've just said over the last 90 seconds or so. So fortunately, we have a guest who is qualified to talk about it. And that guest today is Cedric Brown, who is founder and CEO of CMB Lean Partners. CMB connects clients to the best lean and Six Sigma experts in the world. They offer a blended learning model, including boot camps, simulations, online roadmaps, and hands-on consulting proven to drive significant sustainable business impact. Whether you are starting the journey or need to accelerate your transformation, contact them to learn about exciting new projects and services, products and services they are developing with their global partners to accelerate your lean journey. Cedric is an experienced business transformation leader with a track record of transforming value streams, business units, and companies utilizing Lean Six Sigma principles and methodologies. Now, here's some of the cool stuff. Uh, Cedric trained and mentored, but was trained and mentored by the original team from Japan that worked directly with Taichi Ono, the architect of the Toyota production system. His proven experience in design and implementation of an enterprise-wide lean program, including full employee engagement through lean boot camps and Kaizen's. Cedric is also a Six Sigma deployment expert and was trained and mentored by George X, the number one Six Sigma consultant who helped a guy named Jack Welch of GE implement Six Sigma. Featured best master black belt in his book, Making Six Sigma Last, Bridging the Cultural Gap. He also provided consulting for clients in the automotive, healthcare, electronics, and clothing industries. Um, we could go on and on, but I think you get the you, you get the story. Cedric knows what he's talking about. Cedric, welcome to the Decision Vision Podcast. Thank you, Mike. So, lean may lean. I think can mean things different things to a lot of people. To me, it to me it means the fact that I've lost forty five pounds this year. Um, but I don't think that's what we're talking about from a from a, a business standpoint. So when when you're talking about lean principles in business, how do you define that? Good question. Uh, to talk about that, I have to give you a little backstory about the origins of the word lean in a business context. In 1980, 1988, John Krafchick was an engineer who was working on his thesis, and it was a very interesting uh, study that he was conducting. It was called, the name of his thesis was Comparative Analysis of Performance Indicators in World Auto Plants. And so he was studying what was going on in the automotive industry in 1988. This is before the word lean was coined, before... Uh, books about Toyota and things like that as part of his study. And he found some interesting things as he went about his study. He had to do something called uh, a regression analysis. And this is where you have to set up different factors in order to test statistically to see what was really driving impact. So it was of great interest to a lot of people. In one particular case, he set up a parameter that he recognized when he walked into the different facilities, and he worked with the 37 largest plants 
around the world and with all of the uh, suppliers of those plants and all of the processes inside those plants. And what he noticed was something unique uh, as soon as he walked in. Some of those plants were what he categorized in his study as buffered, which mean they had extra buffers of inventory, parts, people, equipment to buffer against virtually anything that could happen. It's the way plants run. How do you keep from shutting down? Well, you have buffers there in just in case, in case of quality problems. Let's say you may have a production stoppage of some kind or a supplier that didn't deliver or a setup that took too long or somebody that didn't show up for work. So he recognized that they had buffers to cover all of those. Contrasting that, there were other plants that he would go into and he didn't see those buffers. So he came up with those two categories as possible uh, tests for one of the key factors or key performance indicators of the performance of these uh, major plants. And what had happened recently was Everybody was uh, discussing how impactful the Japanese automotive manufacturers were and the progress they had made in competing with Chrysler, Ford, and GM uh, over that past three of three decades, how they had made a lot of ground. And they ran a study where Toyota and GM did a joint venture what they called the Numi experiment, where they took a, one of Toyota took one of GM's plants with the UAW, the same equipment, the same processes, and they put in their system. So this was a part of the research that John was doing also. Well, fast forward to the end of his study, and what he found was the main predictor of performance was whether it was a process plant that had buffered resources or one that had unbuffered resources. And so he found that the plants that were unbuffered were 38.7% more productive. And this was in 1988, and this is measuring the hours that it takes to produce an automobile, that they were 38.7% more productive than the plants that had the buffer. Well, of course, but unbuffered is not a good term, so he was looking for the right word, hence lean was coined at that point. And what it really stood for was describing these operations that could get more results with less resources. That's the beginning of the term lean. So when people say lean, that's really, when they're informed, that's what they're talking about. Now, his thesis advisor, James Womack, went on to write two books about John's paper. One of them was Toyota, the Machine That Changed the World. And the second one was Lean Thinking, where he really described this as a, as a thinking, a way of thinking as you get into businesses. And it's evolved since then into being a total business transformation system. So when you say, what is Lean uh, that's my two-minute answer. It's about my 30-second answer is it's getting more done with less resources required. And and so 
let's let's kind of dive right into it. Are are there a set of of core guiding principles of lean management that kind of make up that 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 thought system? Yes, yeah, there is a set of principles. You know, John was doing a passive study. He was looking at the data to find what was driving performance, but transforming a company into a lean company requires a whole business system. So there are some principles that underlie what we call today the lean business system. The first one is that it has to be strategic and led from the top. So the CEO, the CFO, the executive team has to be involved because the beginning of becoming lean is to decide where do you want to use this new strategic advantage that you're about to create? It needs to be focused on your strategy. The second key principle is involves people. One of the things that's been found as in the more studies of lean companies is it's really about the people that are doing the work that made the biggest difference. And that showed up in John's study also. Um, the best ideas come from those that are closest to the process is one of the, the key principles. And you're really investing in your people and appreciating asset as opposed to a depreciating asset. And you're transforming how they think as one of the key principles of lean. There's two more principles. The third one is involves process focus. Everything that happens in any business, Mike, happens through a process. Now, there are formal processes and there are informal processes, but nothing happens unless there's a process involved. And what's happened over time is processes have evolved and lean starts to get back into what's really going on inside that process and standardizing them by taking out the waste. And that brings me to the fourth principle, which is to create a performance culture that's focused on continuous improvement. Now, the way Lean goes about driving continuous improvement is really unique in that Taiichi Ono, the father of the Toyota production system, categorized eight types of, seven types of waste. One has been added uh, since his death, but he categorized these types of waste. And the way he did that is he visited Ford And at that time, Ford was nine times more productive than Toyota. But what he recognized is they weren't working nine times faster. So he determined that Toyota must be wasting something. And that was the genesis of these waste. And that principle around continuous improvement focuses on the way you improve is by removing the waste. It's counterintuitive. Because as an engineer, early in my career, I focused on improving the value-add process, make the machine run faster. But lean focuses on the non-value-added activities, the waste, the muda, the Japanese word for waste, and removing that. And when you do, everything else speeds up. So those are the the four principles of lean. So. Um... I'm going to ask a question I think brings up a subtle, to me, it's a subtle point. It may may not be, but I think it's very important. I I think if you're not educated about 
about the lean philosophy. When we think of lean, we think of cost slashing, right? Slashing and burning. People got to get fired. Mm-hmm. Um, slashing budgets and and telling people sort of you have you have less resources to to work with. Figure out a way to make it happen anyway. Um, and I think that's actually unfair, right? I think I think and tell me if I'm wrong, but my impression of lean to the extent that I've studied is more like if you do things differently, you're just going to find you're not going to need those budgets to begin with. That's, that's what we find with lean. Um, Lots of people think that's what's meant by lean. You know, it's about being anorexic as opposed to having just what you need, having not enough. And that's a misnomer. Actually uh, the benefits of lean comes in uh, kind of many ways other than just the cost delighted customers because lean is so focused on the processes that deliver the value for the customers. The customers end up delighted, whether it's better quality, uh, shorter lead times, better cost, better service. So it delights the customers. Another byproduct is when we talked about those people and investing in the people that generate the ideas in the company, it, Lean creates another benefit as engaged employees. Everybody's trying to drive up their employee engagement scores, and they usually end up with something where the employees say, our department is great, that other department's not so good. Well, Lean cuts through that stuff, and it really breaks the mold when it comes to employee engagement and driving up those numbers. And then the, um, I think one of the biggest things is rewarded shareholders. Uh, Lean generates like a super return on the investment in a way that the shareholders are rewarded and ready to invest in the company again. So it's, that's a misnomer that Lean is, um, you know, about cutting, 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 getting to the cost. Some do it that way, but it's not the way that it's supposed to be done. That doesn't really follow the Lean principles. You know, when your lead times go from weeks to days, when you cut your productivity by 50% the first year, I mean, improve it 50% the first year and then 50% the year after that, and then you see even more gains, your working capital requirements go down 80, 90%. Your scrap is cut 50% year one. Defects are cut 50% year one. Throughput is cut about 90% in year one. That gives you a very powerful competitive edge on your competition and really rewards your three key stakeholders, your employees, your customers, and your shareholders. So, so I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because, because I think that this is an important part that's overlooked by, by Lean. Um, and you know, two philosophies I have in business, which have served me well, not that I'm, no, nobody's invited me to take over their fortune 100 company, but nevertheless, I think two things that have, that have served me well is, is one, um, you know, speed is speed is sneaky, powerful, man. People, customers like it when you, if you deliver stuff on time or even faster than they are expecting it. Um, and as long as you're not sacrificing quality, it's not shoddy. That really makes a big difference. I, I can tell you, we win a lot of business just because of the fact that we can, we can deliver faster. Yeah. 
yeah. might be the exact same product. We may even charge more for it, but because we can get that report in their hands two weeks earlier than the other guy, that that that's a that's a major competitive driver. Um, and then the other part you talked about in terms of employee engagement, you know, employees aren't dumb. Um, they they understand when their time and effort is being wasted. <laughs> Yeah. They understand, you know, and, and workers generally want to work. They don't want to sit around watching the paint dry or watching the clock move until lunch, until everything else, right? They want to be engaged and productive and, 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 and prove their value. And, um, you know, waste in many, in many ways, in my experience can be very cancerous, especially if it feels like nobody else kind of who's directing those employees cares about waste, cares about listening to suggestions and how to reduce it. It, 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 it creates a, a, a toxic culture of its own at the, even at the micro level, when, when you send a message, even, you know, often by accident that waste is just okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we see that a lot and you're right. The companies that, can really compress that lead time, have a competitive edge that they can use in more than one way. They could charge more for that premium service, or they could put pressure on their competition and take market share away. And this is what we see over and over, regardless of the industry, regardless of the type of company, that's what we see companies doing once they understand the competitive edge that they gain from lean deployments. Now, are there other benefits that other non-financial benefits or non-sort of monetary, if you will, benefits that adopting a lean philosophy or successfully implementing a lean philosophy offers other than employee engagement and, and speed of delivery to customers? Well, when you start a lean process, you're basically going to transform everything about the business. Every process is touched. Every employee is engaged in a lean deployment, in a lean company. For companies that are the beginning of their journey, that doesn't happen right away, but it, it spreads really, really fast as they start to get involved. And the culture really starts to shift. So that's the big change is once you start to change the culture, then everything else starts to move faster. The company gets in a position where it knows how to uh, satisfy customers better than their competitors can. Um, now, you know, obviously we're we're still in exiting. I'm not sure where we are in this pandemic. We're in this pandemic thing. Has that, in your mind, has that changed companies' relationships with or perceptions of lean does lean become more important because of the way that that you know the labor market has obviously changed i think in a very secular way my own opinion you may disagree and that's fine um or does lean take a back seat because there's just so much disruption you don't even know what lean looks like or are maybe both those things are at play or maybe something else right but how does the pandemic impact impact our relationship or perception of lean philosophy? Well, one of the things that happens during the pandemic and things like that is it creates an economic crisis. And 
you know, when there's an economic crisis, whether it's local or global, to the executive of executives of a company, uh, it creates really demand for a lean transformation. Let's take the pandemic. What companies found when they weren't able to come into the office was they didn't have, many companies didn't have good solid processes. So they had to start building those and putting those in place. You know, when you could walk over to somebody's office and ask them something, that was the informal process. What they found was all of those informal processes really didn't function well when we were all working remote. So it created a demand to start to build out some processes and figure out how we're going to flow these things around when we can't walk around and talk to each other. Um, it's interesting that, you know, earlier I mentioned the book Lean Thinking and copies and sales of that book increases anytime there's a big economic crisis. <laughs> Actually, it was published during you know, a period where the economy was roaring. Nobody was really interested in reading it. And as soon as it came upon a recession, it went on to the New York Times bestseller list. The authors and the publishers are kind of giving up on it. They're like, well, we thought people would be interested, but they're not. And without any publication, and the publisher said it was unprecedented, it hit the New York Times list because the demand that's created whenever we have an economic crisis, whether it's driven by natural sources or pandemics, or so it creates a high demand. Uh, specifically for us, what we found is, of course, we couldn't do our boot camps, uh, but the demand for our master classes peaked as people wanted to learn more and be able to work remote. And we were able to help some companies to keep their deployments going and help others to get started during that period. You know, that's so interesting about, about human psychology. And it, it makes you wonder, and maybe you, you may have an answer to this, or at least some thoughts on this. Why do we only care about lean when the outside environment is tough, right? Wouldn't it be so much easier to adopt lean in a non-crisis footing when times are good, sales are coming through or easy? Why, why do we wait until there's a bad economy to really focus on lean? That's very perplexing to me personally. Now, you know, I have a unique perspective in that I learned lean early in my career. And, you know, I learned it by being the turnaround guy inside the, the companies I was working on. And I became seen as that. And people thought I had a magic formula, but I was just deploying lean and learning how to do it better and better. Um, but it perplexes me because all of the studies, the study in 1988 said it was 38.7% more productive. And then in 2018, you know, McKinsey, they have access to new technologies now where they can, you know, look at the performance, the stock performance, the economic profit, the return to shareholders of all of the companies in their portfolio and use their artificial intelligence models to determine who is, what systems are winning, what are the companies doing, similar to what uh, John did in his first study, but on a much grander scale. And in 2018, that study came back and said the same thing, except the numbers and the gaps between the 
buffered and unbuffered, if I could use those terms, was even bigger this time around because the companies that are deploying lean have learned how to do it. And they're not out telling their competition, hey, you should try this. They're actually taking market share. Now, it's interesting. We're seeing the demand for lean grow a lot. So while a lot of companies don't get it, more and more companies are starting to get it each year. And 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 as as kind of a follow up, you know, we we have this environment that that I've not seen in my lifetime. I'm I'm 51, where we have in in many industries just flat out shortages of labor. Yeah. Right. Um. For for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is is that overnight or almost overnight, our society has simply changed its relationship with work. Um. Mm-hmm. That's not a. That's not something you can fix. I'm not even sure it's a problem to be solved. It's just an environmental condition. And and I'm curious, does lean become more attractive, maybe even more compulsory, because it is just simply no longer realistic to go out and get some more bodies to to do stuff, right? You've just got to make do with what you have because it ain't available. It's not out there. Yeah. You know, they say uh, necessity, you know, is the uh, mother of invention, right? Sure, so, sure. And I think that's what we're seeing. Actually, Taichi Ono will tell you that's how he discovered lean himself. It, huh. They didn't use that term. They call it just in time in the Toyota production system, but it was out of need. They had a need and he had to go and search. So I think those needs, you know, Business leaders are really smart. And, you know, what we're finding is it's not that they don't get it. It's it's the logic of the systems they're using, the mass production buffered systems. The logic that applies there is what's losing, not um, their competence in how to execute it. So as soon as they get it, you know, they quickly start to look in a different direction. It's kind of like uh, cognitive dissonance or something mm-hmm. like that, where our minds are set up in a way that, especially in corporate America, where bigger batches just sounds like it's going to be better. And working in departmental silos just sounds like it's going to give me scale. But what we find is when we start breaking that down, with the tools that we use, things like value stream maps, we start to find where those problems are. And, you know, it kind of melts away that layer of um, doubt that people have, and they start to buy in. You know, one of the things we do is, you mentioned our boot camps earlier, and leaders ask me, well, what do we learn to change in the boot camps? Well, you learn to change your mind. Because we give you a real-world scenario, and you can experiment. And with me, when I'm leading it as your sensei, you can decide to make the batch bigger or smaller. Either way, you're going to learn. And the object there is to gain knowledge. And so I'll let them do it either way. I've got a baseline that they're trying to hit and turn the business around. But if they want to experiment with larger batches, We'll do that, and they'll learn from it. So they get to do things they can't do inside their company, kind of uh, practicing with live ammo, if you will. Hmm. Um, 
this is a way to come in, experiment, try some things. And typically when they leave, I'll get notes saying, wow, that was that was mind changing. And so we've been working on this boot camp for years to get it right, where you can learn by doing, but not in your own process. So we simulate the real world. And then at the end of that, we assimilate it into your processes. And that's the the best tool I've found for leaders to really get it, because these leaders are really smart. But somewhere along the way, we all learn that bigger batches and department silos can solve the problems, and they can't. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it we can fool ourselves into thinking that economies of scale is always important, right? But but you can also have you can create diseconomies of scope, <laughs> yeah. When you do that, that 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 offsets it. Yeah, um, you know, John, in that first study I was talking about, he was really surprised that the economies of scale couldn't, you know, with those buffered systems, that it could not perform the lean system. And I I think it's just intuition tells you it won't, but it does every time. So, um. What what are some signs that a company that is underperforming is underperforming because they're not lean enough? What are some signs that a company kind of needs to really consider adopting lean as a as a way for it to to reach its full potential? Oh, good question. Um, usually, what will happen is, you know, these processes we talked about earlier have evolved in companies. And companies are quick to automate. And so what they end up doing is automating the waste. In Lean, we have a philosophy, eliminate, then automate. Okay, And whether you're automating the transfer of information or the product moving, it doesn't matter. We should take out the waste when we um, first get started on that. So one of the things that helps that's, helps to identify a company that's really primed and ready for lean is when the processes that they've relied on so much that's got them to the point where they are today just can't keep up anymore. The customer demands are going up, the shareholder demands are going up, the employee demands are going up, and these same processes, they're overwhelmed. They can't scale up to keep up anymore. And so we end up working harder and harder, faster and faster without the results to show for it. That's the indicators. That's some of the indicators that it's time for lean. The other thing is all the performance numbers, they start to flatline. So you get an organization that's burnt out and the performance indicators that are flatlined, and that's how you know it's time to do something different. And that usually creates the need to start looking for a better way. So we, um, I, I think it's natural to associate adopting lean philosophy to manufacturing companies. Yeah. Um, that would be the natural association. Of course, it's associated with Toyota and GE, you know, the big, any really the big Korean and, and, and Japanese manufacturers and so forth. Um, but, but can it be applied to my industry? Could it, can lean principles be applied to professional services, for example? Well, yes, absolutely. 
Um, every company runs on processes. If there's a process, there's an opportunity to use lean. So it doesn't just go into manufacturing companies. And what happened, what drove some of that was, remember, John didn't call it lean manufacturing. Matter of fact, he went out of his way not to call it that. And his mentor actually called it lean thinking. Okay. And Taichi Ono called it a lean production system. By the way, Deming also called it a system. But when it got branded as lean manufacturing, a couple of things happened. One, it broke one of the principles that it should be led from the top. Since it's a manufacturing thing, the C-level suite started to delegate it, usually to somebody in operations and typically as far down in operations as they possibly could. So, you know, that starts to cause a problem. Um, and then the... You know, the the other thing that happened there is when you call it lean manufacturing and you're not a manufacturer, of course, you're wondering why is somebody talking to me about lean manufacturing when I'm not a manufacturing company, I'm a service company. So it would have had a better name if it had been called lean processes or lean thinking. And it's evolved now into being called in most companies that are really transforming a business system. Danaher comes to mind. They call it the Danaher business system, as in the Danaher business transformation system is kind of what I call it. So it applies to service industries as much as it applies to manufacturing industries. And part of what drives people to not realize that is the name lean manufacturing. It should be something different. So what you're saying is uh, when I read uh, the book, The Goal, about three years ago, even though I'm in professional services, I didn't waste my time. No, you did not waste (laughs) your time. Just substitute service everywhere they put manufacturing and you've got it. You know, service processes, what we find, have even greater opportunities than manufacturing processes. You know, in manufacturing, they at least think about it in the context of a process. In services, in many cases, what we find is they've been patchworked together, super glued when you do M&A, and that's what you get. And so when we go in and we do a a value stream on product innovation or uh, order to delivery of a service, we find lots and lots of things that we're doing that has no value to the customer. And that meets the definition of being waste at that point. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm 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 glad you said that. And I speculate that that services are slow to adopt are slow to adopt this because services don't have the same constraints as manufacturing, right? With with manufacturing, at some point you're constrained by your capital, and it's not always you can't you can't just build a new factory, right? Ask the semiconductor companies how long it takes to build a new factory, right? You can't even necessarily buy a new machine and install it, right? At some point, the machines have a rated capacity um, and, and have only so many hours a year of operation got to be maintained, that sort of thing. Services, I think, can be more forgiving of being unlean because, one, they're full of creative types like me um, that, that think, we're being, think we're being really cool rebels by, by shunning process. 
And I, I will admit to have gone, having gone through that early in my career, and it was painful to change that. But also, second, that that our our response, and we're seeing. I think now we're seeing the the fruits of this. The response is, well, just work more hours, <laughs> right? We have lousy processes. We still got to get this out to clients. So just work ninety hours a week, and we'll pay you a big bonus. Mm-hmm. And I think we're now reaching a point in our economy where it, there are just a lot fewer people that are willing to do that. Um, doesn't matter how much you pay them. And so that, that safety valve that we've enjoyed in services where we've, we've sold a culture, uh, you know, that, that burnout is king. We're starting to learn that on the labor side, we're going to have the same constraints as people that have physical capital constraints. Yes. Yeah. You're spot on with that. You know, a lean system, it really has three components, Mike. Uh, three distinct components. We call them, the first component is called what we, what we call working on the business. It's where the vision and strategy and culture all kind of intersect to define where are we going, who do we want to be, and how do we win. And we have tools for that. Strategy deployment comes to mind. Value streams come to mind. QFD comes to mind. Okay, then there's the in the business work that we do, and that's the work that the customers are really showing up to pay for. That's what they value. That's what they want from us. And the transformation work we do there, you know, whether it's a service or a product is what the customer is willing to pay for. And that's where the frontline work really happens. And then there's a whole set of work. That's all about how we improve. So we've got on the business work, we've got in the business work, and we've got Kaizen work. Or Kaizen is a Japanese term that means uh, good change, change for the better. And when you hear about all the tools we use, which are a lot of fun to use, especially in service processes, when creative types find out about these tools, they get really excited about them. But we have a set of a portfolio, a whole set of tools that are designed for different kinds of challenges that we take on. It's interesting that the tools we use in manufacturing, for example, we have one for quick changeovers. When we apply that to accounts, uh, accounting, where they have to close the books, we use the exact same methodology and processes. We document the current state. We find out everything that needs to be, that could be external, that's currently internal and move them out. We lay out the internal processes in a way. We eliminate the things that the customer doesn't really care about. So we follow the exact same steps. And once the office personnel get a hold of that, it's like, it's a catalyst for change at that point. So, I think we're going to find that more and more service businesses, as they get turned on the lean and start working on the business, in the business, and improve what we call their Kaizen cadence, the pace of good change, everybody gets excited. And work is different at that point. The burnout goes away. These problems can be solved. And the tools are there to solve them. We just need to learn the tools. I'm talking with Cedric Brown and the topic is, should I adopt lean management? I may have to have you back for a part two, but, but one, one, um, one question I do want to 
I want to make sure that we cover is, you know, I think companies do fail to go lean going, adopting lean is not easy. Um, if it were, uh, they wouldn't need people like you as much, right? Um, when companies fail to really adopt lean, they, they, you know, they fail to, to make that part of their company. What are the most typical reasons that a, a move to adopt lean fails? What are the typical reasons? Well, I'll take you back to the principles. The number one reason is one of the first principles. It needs to be tied to the strategy and led from the top. Okay. And so when we don't do that, it will definitely fail. So you can't, uh, as a CEO, say, you guys all be lean, but I'm going to do what I'm doing up here. I, you know, <laughs> the resources and everything follow the leader. And so you can say one thing and do another thing, and they're going to follow what you do. So it's important that the leaders engage. And earlier I was mentioning the, the three types of work. Well, the executive suite gets a whole new set of tools. The strategy deployment is really a neat tool to organize all these things they've been trying to get done. And it's like I said, that intersection between the mission, the vision, the strategy, and what we do day in and day out. So uh, they get a whole new set of tools to work with, and they get excited when they get turned on to those. What is the, is there something a company needs to do to prepare itself for going lean? You know, let, let, let me be very granular here. Okay. Somebody, somebody wants to go lean. They're going to bring you or somebody from your network, your association in to help them do that. Is there, is there a groundwork that a company needs to do, needs to put down before somebody like you can come in and help them achieve that goal? Or can you just sort of walk in, maybe it's a disaster area, maybe it's not, and then over time you can eventually get where you need to go? Well, that's, that's, um, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, unlike other things where you got to do a lot of groundwork to get started, uh, what you really need to do with Lean is you, you have to have a basic understanding of it. And then you'll get excited about what lean can do for you and how to deploy it. And so this is why our boot camp, you know, it sells out because when you come in there, now you can get the basis for what's possible without practicing right away in your own process. But we've got a process that we walk through once the leaders understand what the big picture looks like. Um, and so we start with the strategy. We select what we call a strategic value stream. That's really important that we identify those value streams and select a value stream or two or three or four to transform, depending on the size and scale of the company. And so the next step there would be to map that current state. Now, what you learn in the boot camp is what that map would look like in the process that we're involved in. So when you go into mapping it and everybody's been through the boot camp, they're really anxious to see their only their own current state map. And then what we do as your sensei, we design the future state for you. Before we introduce the boot camp, people really couldn't see what this future state would do or how it would work, so they would resist it. Now what we find is they want to move faster than they really should. 
So we put a cadence on it. What kind of pace should we move at in order to move from that current state to the future state? And that's a series of Kaizen events that are paced where you're learning the tools, you're driving the change, and you're getting the benefit along the way. And so that's how we recommend uh, companies that want to become lean. There is no report to prepare or, you know, you don't clean it up before somebody comes over to clean up. We just start right there at the front end. And from there, we follow the process. Cedric, I'm afraid we're out of time. And uh, I, I, it's really a shame because I'm really enjoying this conversation. I'm, I'm learning so much. This is just not my field of expertise. <clears throat> but it, it, I'm, I'm sure there are questions that uh, our listeners wished that I would have asked, or maybe I'd stayed on longer to probe more deeply. If somebody wants to contact you with a question to continue this conversation, get some advice, um, are, are they welcome to do so? And if so, what's the best way for them to contact you? Absolutely. They're welcome to contact me. I love talking about this, especially with people who are interested. Uh, my email, Cedric, C-E-D-R-I-C dot brown like the color at leanjourney.com is the easiest way to contact me. I'm also on LinkedIn, and I'll be glad to connect with anybody who would like to connect with me on LinkedIn or you can visit our website and find out about our portfolio of uh, products that help you to learn faster and engage deeper and sustain longer. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Cedric Brown so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at unblakable on Facebook, Twitter, clubhouse, and Instagram. Also check out my new LinkedIn group called a group that doesn't suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware and company, and this has been the decision vision podcast.